Book 3 And now there is no turning back at all. Elric's destiny has been forged and fixed, as surely as the Hell Swords were forged and fixed aeons before. Was there ever a point where he might have turned off his road to despair, damnation and destruction? Or has he been doomed since before his birth? Doomed through a thousand incarnations to know little else but sadness and struggle, loneliness and remorse, eternally the champion of some unknown cause? Chapter 1 Through the Shade Gate And Elric stepped into a shadow and found himself in a world of shadows. He turned, but the shadow through which he had entered now faded and was gone. Old Albeck's sword was in Elric's hand. The black helm and black armour were upon his body, and only these were familiar, for the land was dark and gloomy as if contained in a vast cave whose walls, though invisible, were oppressive and tangible. And Elric regretted the hysteria, the weariness of brain which had given him the, the impulse to obey his patron demon Ariog and plunge through the shade gate. But regret was useless now, so he forgot it. Irkun was nowhere to be seen. Either Elric's cousin had had a steed waiting him, awaiting him, or else, more likely, he had entered this world at a slightly different angle, for all the planes were said to turn about each other, and was thus either nearer or further from their mutual goal. The air was rich with brine, so rich that Elric's nostrils felt as if they had been packed with salt. It was almost like walking underwater and just being able to breathe the water itself. Perhaps this explained why it was so difficult to see any great distance in any direction. Why there were so many shadows. Why the sky was like a veil which hid the roof of a cavern. Elric sheathed his sword, there being no evident danger present at that moment, and turned slowly, trying to get some kind of bearing. It was possible that there was a jagged mountain in what he judged the east, and perhaps a forest to the west. Without sun or stars or moon, it was hard to gauge distance or direction. He stood on a rocky plain over which whistled a cold and sluggish wind, which tugged at his cloak as if it wished to possess it. There are a few stunted, leafless trees standing in a clump about a hundred paces away. It was all that relieved the bleak plain, save for a large, shapeless slab of rock which stood a fair way beyond the trees. It was a world which seemed to have been drained of all life, where law and chaos had once battled, and in their conflict destroyed all. Were there many such plains as this one, Elric wondered? For a moment he was filled with a dreadful presentiment concerning the fate of his own rich world. He shook the mood off at once and began to walk towards the trees and the rock beyond. He reached the trees and passed them, and the touch of his cloak on a branch broke the brittle thing, which turned almost at once to ash, which was scattered on the wind. Elric drew the cloak closer about his body. 
As he approached the rock, he became conscious of a sound which seemed to emanate from it. He slowed his pace and put his hand upon the pommel of his sword. The noise continued, a small rhythmic noise. Through the gloom peered Alric carefully at the rock, trying to locate the source of the sound. And then the noise stopped and was replaced by another, a soft scuffle, a padding footfall and then silence. Elric took a pace backwards and drew Albeck's sword. The first sound had been that of a man sleeping. The second sound was that of a man waking and preparing himself, either for attack or to defend himself. Elric said, I am Elric of Malnibane. I am a stranger here. And an arrow slid past his helm almost at the same moment as a bowstring sounded. Elric flung himself to one side and sought about for cover, but there was no cover save the rock behind which the archer hid. And now a voice came from behind the rock. It was a firm, rather bleak voice. It said, That was not meant to harm you, but to display my skill in case you considered harming me. I've had my fill of demons in this world, and you look like the most dangerous demon of all, Whiteface. I am mortal, said Elric, straightening up and deciding that if he must die, it would be best to die with some sort of dignity. You spoke of Malnibane. I've heard of the place an Isle of Demons. Well then you have not heard enough of Malnibane. I am mortal, as are all my folk. Only the ignorant think us demons. Well, I am not ignorant, my friend. I am a warrior priest of Foom, born to the caste and the inheritor of all its knowledge, and until recently, the Lords of Chaos themselves were my patrons. Then I refused to serve them longer and was exiled to this plain by them. Perhaps the same fate befell you, for the folk of Malnibane serve Chaos, do they not? Aye, I know of Foom. It lies in the unmapped east, beyond the weeping waste, beyond the sighing desert, beyond even Elhwer. It is one of the oldest of the young kingdoms. All that is so, though I dispute that the east is unmapped, save by the savages of the west, so you are indeed to share my exile, it seems. Well, I am not exiled, I am upon a quest. When the quest is done, I shall return to my own world. A return, you say? That interests me, my pale friend. I had thought return impossible. Well, perhaps it is, and I have been tricked. And if your own powers have not found your way to another plane, perhaps mine will not save me either. Powers? <laughs> I have none since I relinquished my servitude to chaos. Well, friend, do you intend to fight me? Well, there's only one upon this plane I would fight, and it is not you, warrior priest of Foom. Elric sheathed his sword, and at the same moment the speaker rose from behind the rock, replacing a scarlet-fletched arrow in his scarlet quiver. I am Rakir, said the man. Call the Red Archer, for, as you see, I affect scarlet dress. It is a habit of the warrior priests of Foom to choose but a single colour to wear. It is the only loyalty to tradition I still possess. He had on a scarlet jerkin, scarlet breeks, scarlet shoes and a scarlet cap with a scarlet feather in it. His bow was scarlet and the pommel of his sword glowed ruby red. His face, which was aquiline and gaunt, as if carved from fleshless bone, was weather-beaten, and that was brown. He was tall and he was thin, but muscles rippled on his arms and torso. There was an irony in his eyes, and 
something of a smile upon his thin lips, though the face showed that it had been through much experience, little of it pleasant. An odd place to choose for a quest, said the Red Archer, standing with hands on hips and looking Elric up and down, but I'll strike a bargain with you if you're interested. Well, if the bargain suits me, Archer, I'll agree to it, for you seem to know more of this world than do I. Well, you must find something here and then leave, whereas I have nothing at all to do here and wish to leave. If I help you in your quest, will you take me with you when you return to our own plane? Now, this seems a fair bargain, but I cannot promise what I have no power to give. I will say only this. If it is possible for me to take you back with me to our own plane, either before or after I have finished my quest, I will do it. Well, that is reasonable, said Rakia the Red Archer. Now, tell me what you seek. I seek two swords forged millennia ago by immortals, used by my ancestors, but then relinquished by them and placed upon this plane. The swords are large and heavy and black, and they have cryptic runes carved into their blades. I was told that I would find them in the Polson Cavern, which has reached through the tunnel under the marsh. Have you heard of either of these places? Well, I have not, nor have I heard of the two black swords. Rakia rubbed his bony chin. Though I remember reading something in one of the books of Foom, and what I read disturbed me. While the swords are legendary, many books make some small reference to them, almost always mysterious. There is said to be one tome which records the history of the swords and all who have used them, and all who will use them in the future, a timeless book which contains all time. Some call it the Chronicle of the Black Sword, and in it, it is said, men may read their whole destinies. Well, I know nothing of that either. It is not one of the books of Foom. I fear, comrade Elric, that we shall have to venture into the city of Emiron and ask your questions of the inhabitants there. There is a city upon this plain. Aye, a city. I stayed but a short time in it, preferring the wilderness. But with a friend it might be possible to bear the place a little longer. And why is Emiron unsuited to your taste? Ah, its citizens are not happy. Indeed, they are the most depressed and depressing group, for they are all, you see, exiles or refugees or travellers between the worlds who lost their way and never found it again. No one lives in Emiron by choice. A veritable city of the damned. As the poet might remark, I, Rakia offered Elric a sardonic wink, but I sometimes think all cities are that. Well, what is the nature of this plane where, uh, as far as I can tell, no planets, no moon, and no sun. It has something of the air of a great cavern. Well, there is indeed a theory that it is a sphere buried in an infinity of rock. Others say that it lies in the future of our own Earth, a future where the universe has died. I heard a thousand theories during the short space of time I spent in the city of Amiron. All, it seemed to me, were of equal value. All, it seemed to me, could be correct. And why not? There are some who believe that everything is a lie. Conversely, everything could be the truth. It was Elric's turn to remark ironically. You're a philosopher then, as well as an archer, friend, Rakir of Foom? Rakir laughed. If you like. It is such thinking that weakened my loyalty to chaos and led me to this pass. I've heard that there is a city called Tanalorn, which may sometimes be found on the shifting shores of the sighing desert. If I ever return to our own world, comrade Elric, I shall seek that city. For I have heard that peace may be found there, that such debates as the nature of truth are considered meaningless, that men are content 
merely to exist in Tanalorn. Hmm, well I envy those who dwell in Tanalorn, said Elric. Rakia sniffed. Aye, but it would probably prove a disappointment if found. Legends are best left to be legends. And attempts to make them real are rarely successful. Come, yonder lies Amidrun, and that, sad to say, is more typical of most cities one comes across on any plane. The two tall men, both outcasts in their different ways, began to trudge through the gloom of the desolate wasteland. Chapter 2 In the City of Amidon. The city of Amidon came in sight, and Elric had never seen such a place before. Amidon made Doz Calm seem like the cleanest and most well-run settlement there could be. The city lay below the plain of rocks in a shadow valley over which hung perpetual smoke. A filthy, tattered cloak meant to hide the place from the sight of men and gods. The buildings were mostly in a state of semi-ruin, or else were wholly ruined and shacks and tents erected in their place. The mixture of architectural styles, some familiar and some most alien, was such that Elric was hard put to see one building which resembled another. There were shanties and castles, cottages, towers and forts, plain square villas and wooden huts heavy with carved ornamentation. Others seemed merely piles of rock with a jagged opening at one end for a door. But none looked well. Could not have looked well in that landscape under that perpetually gloomy sky. Here and there red fires sputtered, adding to the smoke, and the smell was Elric and Rakia reached the outskirts, was rich with a great variety of stinks. Arrogance rather than pride is the paramount quality of most of Amuron's residents, said Rakia, wrinkling his hawk-like nose, where they have any qualities of character left at all. Elric trudged through filth. Shadows scuttled amongst the close-packed buildings. Was there an inn, perhaps, where we can inquire after the tunnel under the marsh and its whereabouts? No inn. By and large, the inhabitants keep themselves to themselves. A city square where folk meet? Uh, the city has no centre. Each resident or group of residents built their own dwelling where they felt like it, or where there was space, and they come from all planes and all ages, thus the confusion, the decay, and the oldness of many of the places. Thus the filth, the hopelessness, and the decadence of the majority. And how do they live? Well, they live off each other by and large. They trade with demons who occasionally visit Amuron from time to time. Demons? Aye, and the bravest hunt the rats which dwell in the caverns below the city. What demons are these? Oh, just creatures, mainly minor minions of chaos who want something that Amiranese can supply, stolen soul or two, baby perhaps, though few are born here. You can imagine what else if you've knowledge of what demons normally demand from sorcerers. Aye, I can imagine. So chaos can come and go on this plane as it pleases. Well, I'm not sure it's quite as easy, but it's certainly easier for the demons to travel back and forth here than it would be for them to travel back and forth in our plane. And have you seen any of these demons? Aye, oh, the usual bestial sort. Coarse, stupid, powerful. Many of them were once human before. 
electing to bargain with chaos, and now they are mentally and physically warped into foul demon shapes. Elric found Rakia's words not to his taste. Is that ever the fate of those who bargain with chaos, he said. Well, you should know if you come from Malnibane. I know that in Foom it is rarely the case, but it seems that the higher the stakes, the subtler are the changes a man undergoes when chaos agrees to trade with him. Elric sighed. Where shall we inquire of our tunnel under the marsh? Well, there was an old man, Rakia began, and then a grunt behind him made him pause. Another grunt. A face with tusks in it emerged from a patch of darkness formed by a fallen slab of masonry. The face grunted again. Who are you? said Elric, his sword hand ready. Pig, said the face with tusks in it. Elric was not certain whether he was being insulted or whether the creature was describing himself. Pig. Two more faces with tusks in them came out of the patch of darkness. Pig, said one. Pig, said another. Snake, said a voice behind Elric and Rakia. Elric turned while Rakia continued to watch the pigs. A tall youth stood there, where his head would have been sprouted the bodies of about fifteen good-sized snakes. The head of each snake glared at Elric. The tongues flickered and they all opened their mouths at exactly the same moment to say again, Snake. Thing, said another voice. Elric glanced in that direction, gasped, drew his sword and felt nausea sweep through him. Then pigs, snake and thing were upon them. Rakia took one pig before it could move three paces. His bow was off his back and strung and a red fletched arrow knocked and shot all in a second. He had time to shoot one more pig and then dropped his bow to draw his sword. Back to back he and Elric prepared to defend themselves against the demon's attack. Snake was bad enough with its fifteen darting heads hissing and snapping with teeth which dripped venom. But Thing kept changing its form. First an arm would emerge, then a face would appear from the shapeless heaving flesh which shuffled implacably closer. Thing! it shouted. Two swords slashed at Elric, who was dealing with the last pig, and missed his stroke so that, instead of running the pig through his heart, he took him in a lung. Pig staggered backward and slumped to the ground in a pool of muck. He crawled for a moment, but then collapsed. Thing had produced a spear, and Elric barely managed to deflect the cast with the flat of his sword. Now Rakia was engaged with Snake, and the two demons closed on the men, eager to make a finish of them. Half the heads of Snake lay writhing on the ground, and Elric had managed to slice one hand off Thing, but the demons still seemed to have three other hands ready. It seemed to be created not from one creature, but from several. Elric wondered if, through his bargaining with Ariok, this would ultimately be his fate, to be turned into a demon, a formless monster. But, wasn't he already something of a monster? Didn't folk already mistake him for a demon? These thoughts gave him strength. He yelled as he fought, Elric! And Thing was the re replied his adversary, also eager to assert what he regarded as the essence of his being. 
Another hand flew off as Albeck's sword bit into it. Another javelin jabbed out and was knocked aside. Another sword appeared and came down on Elric's helm with a force which dazed him and sent him reeling back against Rakir, who missed his thrust at Snake and was almost bitten by four of the heads. Elric chopped at the arm and the tentacle which held the sword and saw them part from the body, but then became reabsorbed again. The nausea returned. Elric thrust his sword into the mass, and the mass screamed, Thing! 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 Elric thrust again, and four swords and two spears waved and clashed, and tried to deflect Albeck's blade. Thing! Well, this is Urkun's work, said Elric, without a doubt. He has heard that I have followed him, and seeks to stop us with his demon allies. He gritted his teeth and spoke through them. Unless one of these is Urkun himself. Are you my cousin Urkun, Thing? Thing? The voice was almost pathetic. The weapons waved and clashed, but they no longer darted so fiercely at Elric. Or are you some other old familiar friend? Thing? Elric stabbed again and again into the mass. Thick, reeking blood spurted and fell upon his armour. Elric could not understand why it had become so easy to take the attack to the demon. Now, shouted a voice from above Elric's head, quickly. Elric glanced up and saw a red face, a white beard, a waving arm. Don't look at me, you fool. Now strike! And Elric put his two hands about his sword hilt and drove the blade deep into the shapeless creature, which moaned and wept and said in a small whisper, Frank before it died. Rakir thrust at the same moment and his blade went under the remaining snake heads and plunged into the chest and thence into the heart of the youth body and his demon died too. The white-haired man came clambering down from the ruined archway on which he had been perched. He was laughing. Neon the sorcery still has some effect even here, eh? I heard the tall one call his demon friends and instruct them to set upon you. It did not seem fair to me that five should attack two, so I sat upon the wall and I drew the many-armed demon's strength out of it. I still can. I still can. And now I have his strength, or a fair part of it. I feel considerably better than I have done for many a moon, if such a thing exists. Said Frank, said Elric, frowning. Was that a name, do you think? Its name before? Uh, perhaps, said old Neon, perhaps, poor creature. But still it's dead now. You are not of a Miron, you two, though I've seen you here before, red one. And I've seen you, said Rakia with a smile. He wiped Snake's blood on his blade, using one of Snake's heads for the purpose. You are Neon who knew all. Aye, who knew all, but who now knows very little. Soon it will be over, when I have forgotten everything. Then I may return from this awful exile. It is the pact I made with Orland of the Staff. I was a fool who wished to know everything, and my curiosity led me into adventure concerning this Orland. Orland showed me the error of my ways and sent me here to forget. Sadly, as you noticed, I still remember some of my powers and my knowledge from time to time. I know you seek the Black Swords, and I know you are Elric of Malnibane. I know what will become of you. You know my destiny, said Elric eagerly. Tell me what it is, Nyon, who knew all. Nyon opened his mouth as if to speak, but then firmly shut it again. 
No, he said, I've forgotten. No, Elric made as if to seize the old man. No, you remember. I can see that you remember. I have forgotten. Nyon lowered his head. Rakia took hold of Elric's arm. He has forgotten, Elric. Elric nodded. Very well. Then he said, But have you remembered there lies the tunnel under the marsh? Yes, it is only a short distance away from Amiron, the marsh itself. You go that way. Then you look for a monument in the shape of an eagle carved in black marble. At the base of the monument is the entrance to the tunnel. Neon repeated this information, parrot fashion, and when he looked up his face was clearer. What did I just tell you? Alric said, you gave us instructions on how to reach the entrance to the tunnel under the marsh. Did I? Neon clapped his old hands. Splendid, I've forgotten that now too. Who are you? We are best forgotten, said Rakia with a gentle smile. Farewell, Neon, and thanks. Thank, thanks for what? Both for remembering and for forgetting. They walked on through the miserable city of Emiron, away from the happy old sorcerer, sighting the odd face staring at them from a doorway or a window, doing their best to breathe as little of the foul air as possible. I think perhaps I envy Neon alone of all the inhabitants of this desolate place, said Rakia. I pity him, said Elric. Why so? Well, it occurs to me that when he has forgotten everything, he may well forget he is allowed to leave Amiron. Rakia laughed and slapped the albino upon his black, armoured back. You are a gloomy comrade, friend Elric. Are all your thoughts so hopeless? Ah. They tend in that direction, I fear, said Elric, with a shadow of a smile. Chapter 3 The Tunnel Under the Marsh And on they travelled through the sad and murky world until at last they came to the marsh. The marsh was black. Black spiky vegetation grew in clumps here and there upon it. It was cold and it was dank. A dark mist swirled close to the surface, and through the mist sometimes darted low shapes. From the mist rose a solid black object, which could only be the monument described by Nyon. The monument, said Rakir, stopping and leaning on his bow. It's well out of the marsh, and there's no evident pathway leading to it. Is this a problem, do you think, Comrade Elric? Elric waded cautiously into the edge of the marsh. He felt the cold ooze drag at his feet. He stepped back with some difficulty. Well, there must be a path, said Rakia, fingering his bony nose. Else how would your cousin cross? Elric looked over his shoulder at the red archer and he shrugged. Who knows? He could be travelling with sorceress companions who have no difficulty where marshes are concerned. And suddenly Elric found himself sitting down upon the damp rock. The stink of the brine from the marsh seemed for a moment to have overwhelmed him. He was feeling weak. The effectiveness of his drugs last taken just as he stepped through the shade gate were beginning to fade. Rakia came and stood by the albino. He smiled with a certain amount of bantering sympathy. Well, sir sorcerer, cannot you summon similar aid? Elric shook his head. I know little that is practical concerning the raising of small demons. Urkun has all his grimoires, his favourite spells, 
his introductions to the demon worlds. We shall have to find a path of the ordinary kind if we wish, wish to reach wander, yonder monument, warrior priest of Foom. The warrior priest of Foom drew a red kerchief from within his tunic and blew his nose for some time. When he had finished, he put down a hand, helped Elric to his feet, and began to walk along the rim of the marsh, keeping the black monument ever in sight. It was some time later that they found a path at last, and it was not a natural path, but a slab of black marble extending out into the gloom of the mire, slippery to the feet and itself covered in a film of ooze. I would almost suspect this of being a false path, a lure to take us to our death, said Rakia, as he and Elric rose and looked at the long slab. But what have we to lose now? Come, said Elric, setting foot on the slab and beginning to make his cautious way along it. In his hands he held now a torch of sorts, a sort of a bundle of sputtering reeds which gave off an unpleasant yellow light and a considerable amount of greenish smoke. It was better than nothing. Rakir, testing each footstep with his unstrung bow stave, followed behind, whistling a small, complicated tune as he went along. Another of his race would have recognised the tune as the Song of the son of the hero of the high hell who was about to sacrifice his life. A popular melody in Foom, particularly among the cast of the warrior priest. Alric found the tune irritating and distracting, but he said nothing, for he concentrated every fragment of his attention on keeping his balance upon the slippery surface of the slab, which now appeared to rock slightly as it floated in the surface of the marsh. And now they were halfway to the monument, whose shape could be clearly distinguished. A great eagle with spread wings and a savage beak, and claws extended for the kill. An eagle in the same black marble as the slab on which they tried to keep their balance. And Elric was reminded of a tomb. Had some ancient hero been buried here? Or had the tomb been built to house the black swords? Imprison them so that they might never enter the world of men again and steal men's souls. The slab rocked more violently. Elric tried to remain upright, but swayed first on one foot and then the other, the brand waving crazily. Both feet slid from under him, and he went flying into the marsh and was instantly buried up to his knees. He began to sink. Somehow he had managed to keep his grip on the brand, and by its light he could see the red-clad archer peering forward. Elric? I'm here, Rakir. You're sinking. The marsh seems intent on swallowing me eye. Can you lie flat? I can lie forward, but my legs are trapped. Elric tried to move his body in the ooze, which pressed against it. Something rushed past him in front of his face, giving voice to a kind of muted gibbering. Elric did his best to control the fear which welled up in him. I think you must give me up, friend Rakir. What? And lose my means of getting out of this world? You must think me more selfless than I am, comrade Elric. Here, Rakir carefully lowered himself to the slab and reached out his arm towards Elric. Both men were now covered in clinging slime. Both shivered with cold. Rakir stretched and stretched and Elric leaned forward as far as he could and tried to reach his hand, but it was impossible. And every second dragged him deeper into the stinking filth of the march. Then Rakir took up his bow stave and pushed that out 
Grab the bow, Alric, can you? Leaning forward and stretching every bone and muscle in his body, Alric just managed to get a grip on the bow stave. Now I must... Ah! Rakir pulled at the bow, found his own feet slipping and the slab beginning to rock quite wildly. He flung out one arm to grab the far lip of the slab and with the other hand keep his grip on the bow. Hurry, Alric, hurry! Alric began painfully to pull himself out of the ooze. The slab still rocked crazily and Rakir's hawk-like face was almost as pale as Elric's own as he desperately strove to keep his hold on both slab and bow. And then Elric, all soaked in mire, managed to reach the slab and crawl onto it, the brand still sputtering in his hand and lie there, gasping and gasping. Rakir too was short of breath, but he laughed. What a fish I've caught! The biggest yet I'd wager! I am grateful to you, Rakia the Red Archer. I am grateful, warrior priest of Foom. I owe you my life, said Elric after a while. And I swear that whether I am successful in my quest or not, I'll use my powers to see you through the Shade Gate and back into the world from which we have both come. Rakia said quietly, You are a man, Elric of Malnibane, and that is why I saved you. There are few men in my world. He shrugged and grinned. Now, I suggest we continue towards yonder monument on our knees. Undignified it might be, but safer it is also, and it is but a short way to crawl. Elric agreed. Not much more time had passed in that timeless darkness before they had reached a little moss-grown island on which stood the monument of the eagle, huge and heavy, and towering above them into the greater gloom which was either the sky or the roof of the cavern and on the base of the plinth they saw a low doorway, and the doorway was open. A trap, mused Rakia. Or does Urkun assume us perished in Emiron? said Elric, wiping himself free of slime as best he could. He sighed, let's enter and be done with it. And so they entered. They found themselves in a small room. Elric cast the faint light of the brand about the place and saw another doorway. The rest of the room was featureless, each wall made of the same faintly glistening black marble. The room was filled with silence. Neither man spoke. Both walked unfalteringly towards the next doorway and, when they found steps, began to descend the steps, which wound down and down into total darkness. For a long time they descended, still without speaking, until eventually they reached the bottom and saw before them the entrance to a narrow tunnel, which was irregularly shaped so that it seemed more the work of nature than of some intelligence. Moisture dripped from the roof of the tunnel and fell with the regularity of heartbeats to the floor, seeming to echo a deeper sound far away, emanating from somewhere in the tunnel itself. Elric heard Rakia clear his throat, this is without doubt a tunnel, said the Red Archer, and it unquestionably leads under the marsh. Elric felt that Rakia shared his reluctance to enter the tunnel. He stood in the guttering brand held high, listening to the sound of the drops falling to the floor on the tunnel, trying to recognise that other sound which came so faintly from the depths. Then he forced himself forward, almost running into the tunnel, his ears filled with a sudden roaring which might have come from within his head or from some other source in the tunnel. He heard Rakia's footfalls behind him. 
as he drew his sword, the sword of the dead hero Albeck, and he heard the hissing of his own breath echo from the walls of the tunnel which was now alive with sounds of every sort. Elric shuddered, but he did not pause. The tunnel was warm. The floor felt spongy beneath his feet. The smell of brine persisted. And now he could see that the walls of the tunnel were smoother and that they seemed to shiver with quick, regular movement. He heard Rakir gasp behind him as the archer too noted the peculiar nature of the tunnel. It's like flesh, murmured the warrior priest of Foom. Like flesh. Elric could not bring himself to reply. All his attention was required to force himself forward. He was consumed by terror. His whole body shook. He sweated and his legs threatened to buckle under him. His grip was so weak that he could barely keep his sword from falling to the floor, and there were hints of something in his memory, something which his brain refused to consider. Had he been here before? His trembling increased. His stomach turned, but he still stumbled on the brand held before him. And now the soft, steady thrumming sound grew louder, and he saw ahead a small, almost circular aperture at the very end of the tunnel. He stopped, swaying. The tunnel ends, whispered Rekia, there is no way through. The pulsing aperture was pulsing with a swift, strong beat. The pulsing cavern, Elric whispered. That is what we should find at the end of the tunnel under the marsh. That must be the entrance, Rakir. Well, it's too small for a man to enter, Elric, said Rakir reasonably. No, Elric stumbled forward until he stood close to the opening. He sheathed his sword. He handed the brand to Rakir, and then, before the warrior priest of Foom could stop him, he had flung himself head first through the gap, wriggling his body through, and the walls of the aperture parted for him and then closed behind him, leaving Rahir on the other side. Elric got slowly to his feet. A faint pinkish light now came from the walls, and ahead of him was another entrance, slightly larger than the other, through which he had just come. The air was warm and thick and salty. It almost stifled him. His head throbbed and his body ached, and he could barely act or think, save to force himself onward. On faltering legs, he flung himself towards the next entrance as the great muffled pulsing sounded louder and louder in his ears. Elric! Rakir stood behind him, pale and sweating. He had abandoned the brand and followed Elric through. Elric licked dry lips and tried to speak. Rakir came closer. Elric said thickly, Rakir, you should not be here. I said I would help. Aye, but, well then help I shall. Elric had no strength for arguing, so he nodded, and with his hands forced back the soft walls of the second aperture, and saw that it led into a cavern whose round wall quivered to a steady pulsing. And in the centre of the cavern, hanging in the air, without any support at all, were two swords. Two identical swords, huge and fine and black. And standing beneath the swords, his expression gloating and greedy, stood Prince Erkun of Malnibane. Reaching up for them, his lips moving, but no words escaping from him, and Elric himself was able to voice but one word as he slipped through and stood upon the shuddering floor. 
No, he said. The raccoon heard the word. He turned with terror in his face. He snarled when he saw Elric, and then he too voiced a word which was at once a scream of outrage. No! And with an effort, Elric dragged Olbeck's blade from its scabbard, but it seemed too heavy to hold upright. It tugged his arm so that it rested on the floor, his arm hanging straight at his side. Elric drew deep breaths of heavy air into his lungs. His vision was dimming. Urkun had become a shadow. Only the two black swords, standing still and cool in the very centre of the circular chamber, were in focus. Elric sensed Rakia enter the chamber and stand beside him. Urkun, said Elric at last, the swords are mine. Urkun smiled and reached up towards the blades. A peculiar moaning sound seemed to issue from them. A faint black radiance seemed to emanate from them. Elric saw the runes carved into them and he was afraid. Rakia fitted an arrow to his bow. He drew the string back to his shoulder, sighting along the arrow at Prince Erkun. If he must die, Elric, just tell me. Slay him, said Elric, and Rakia released the string. But the arrow moved very slowly through the air and then hung halfway between the archer and his intended target. Erkun turned, a ghastly grin on his face. Mortal weapons are useless here, he said. Elric turned to Rakia. You must be right, and your life is in danger, Rakia. Go. Rakia gave him a puzzled look. No, I must stay here and help you. Elric shook his head. You cannot help. You will only die if you stay. Go. Reluctantly, the Red Archer unstrung his bow, glanced suspiciously up at the two black swords, and then squeezed his way through the doorway and was gone. Now, Urkun, said Elric, letting Albeck's sword fall to the floor. We must settle this, you and I. Chapter 4. Two Black Swords and then the runeblade, Stormbringer, and Mournblade were gone from where they had hung so long, and Stormbringer had settled into Elric's right hand, and Mournblade lay in Prince Erkun's right hand, and the two men stood on opposite sides of the pulsing cavern, and regarded first each other, and then the swords they held. The swords were singing. Their voices were faint, but they could be heard quite plainly. Elric lifted the huge blade easily, and turned it this way and that, admiring its alien beauty. Stormbringer, he said. And then he felt afraid. It was suddenly as if he had been born again and that the rune sword was born with him. It was as if they had never been separate. Stormbringer. And the sword moaned sweetly and settled even more smoothly into his grasp. Stormbringer, yelled Elric as he leapt at his cousin. And he was full of fear. So full of fear. And the fear brought a wild kind of delight. A demonic need to fight and kill his cousin. To sink the blade deep into Urkun's heart. To take vengeance. To spill blood. To send his soul to hell. And now Prince Urkun's sigh could be heard above. The thrum of the sword voices. The drumming of the pulse of the cavern. Mournblade! And Mordenblade came up to meet Stormbringer's blow, 
and turned that blow and thrust back to Elric, who swayed aside and brought Stormbring around and down in a side stroke, which knocked Urkun and Mornblade backward for an instant. And Stormbringer's next thrust was met again, and the next thrust was met, and the next. If the swordsmen were evenly matched, then so were the blades, which seemed possessed of their own wills, though they performed the wills of their wielders. And the clang of the metal upon metal turned into a wild metallic song which the swords sang, a joyful song, as if they were glad at last to be back to battling, though they battled each other. And Elric barely saw his cousin, Prince Urkun, at all, save for the occasional flash of his dark, wild face. Elric's attention was given entirely to the two black swords, for it seemed that the swords fought with the life of one of the swordsmen as a prize, or perhaps the lives of both, thought Elric, and that the rivalry between Elric and Urkun was nothing compared to the brotherly rivalry between the swords who seemed full of pleasure at the chance to engage again after many millennia. And this observation as he fought, had fought for his soul as well as his life, gave Elric pause to consider his hatred of Urkun. Kill Urkun he would, but not at the will of another power, not to give sport to these alien swords. Mornblade's point darted at his eyes and Stormbringer rose to deflect the thrust once more. Elric no longer fought his cousin, he fought the will of the two black swords. Stormbringer dashed for Urkun's momentarily undefended throat. Elric clung to the sword and dragged it back, sparing his cousin's life. Stormbringer whined almost petulantly, like a dog's stopped from biting an intruder. And Elric spoke through clenched teeth. I'll not be your puppet, Runeblade. If we must be united, let it be upon a proper understanding. The sword seemed to hesitate, to drop its guard and Elric was hard put to defend himself against the whirling attack of Mornblade, which in turn seemed to sense its advantage. Elric felt fresh energy pour up his right arm and into his body. This was what the sword could do. With it, he needed no drugs, would never be weak again. In battle, he would triumph. At peace, he would rule with pride. When he travelled, he could be alone and without fear. And was it... It was as if the sword reminded him of all these things, even as it returned Mornblade's attack. And what must the sword have in return? Elric knew. The sword told him, without words of any sort, Stormbringer needed to fight, for that was its reason for existence. Stormbringer needed to kill, for that was the source of its energy. The lives and the souls of men, demons, even gods, and Elric hesitated, even as his cousin gave a huge, cackling yell, and dashed at him so that Mornblade glanced off his helm and was flung backwards and down, and saw Urkun gripping his moaning black sword in both hands to plunge the Runeblade into Elric's body. And Elric knew that he would do anything to resist that fate, for his soul to be drawn into Mornblade and his strength to feed Prince Urkun's strength and he rolled aside very quickly, and got to one knee, and turned, and lifted Stormbringer upon one gauntleted hand, one gauntleted hand upon the blade, and the other upon the hilt, to take the great blow Prince Urkun brought about. And the two black swords shrieked as if in pain, and they shivered, 
and black radiance poured from them as blood might pour from a man pierced by many arrows. And Elric was driven, still on his knees, away from the radiance, gasping and sighing, and peering here and there for sight, and Ercoon, who had disappeared. And Elric knew that Stormbringer spoke to him again. If Elric did not wish to die by Mournblade, then Elric must accept the bargain on which the Black Sword had offered. He must not die, said Elric. I will not slay him to make sport for you. And through the black radiance ran Ercoon, snarling and snapping and whirling his rune sword. Again Stormbringer darted through an opening, and again Elric made the blade pull back, and Ercoon was only grazed. Stormbringer writhed in Elric's hands. Elric said, You shall not be my master. And Stormbringer seemed to understand and become quieter, as if reconciled. And Elric laughed, thinking that he now controlled the rune sword, and that from now on the blade would do his bidding. We shall disarm Ercoon, said Elric. We shall not kill him. Elric rose to his feet. Stormbringer moved with all the speed of a kneel-thin rapier. It fainted, it parried, it thrust. Ercoon, who had been grinning in triumph, snarled and staggered back, the grin dropping from his sullen features. Stormbringer now worked for Elric. It made the moves that Elric wished to make, but Ercoon and the Mornblade seemed disconcerted by this turn of events. Mornblade shouted as if in astonishment at its brother's behaviour. Elric struck at Ercoon's sword arm, pierced cloth, pierced flesh, pierced sinew, pierced bone. Blood came, soaking Ercoon's arm and dripping down onto the hilt of the sword. The blood was slippery. It weakened Ercoon's grip on his rune sword. He took it in both hands, but he was unable to hold it firmly. Elric too took Stormbringer in both hands. Unearthly strength surged through him. With a gigantic blow, he dashed Stormbringer against Mornblade, where Blade met Hilt. The rune sword flew from Ercoon's grasp. It sped across the pulsing cavern. Elric smiled. He had defeated his own sword's will, and in the turn, he had defeated the brother sword. Mornblade fell against the wall of a pulsing cavern, and for a moment was still. A groan then seemed to escape the defeated rune sword. A high-pitched shriek filled the pulsing cavern. Blackness flooded over the eerie pink light and extinguished it. When the light returned, Elric saw that a scabbard lay at his feet. The scabbard was black and of the same alien craftsmanship as the rune sword. Elric saw Urkun. The prince was on his knees and he was sobbing, his eyes darting about the pulsing cavern seeking Mornblade, looking at Elric with fright as if he knew he must now be slain. Mornblade, Urkun said hopelessly. He knew he was to die. Mornblade had vanished from the pulsing cavern. Your sword is gone said Elric quietly. Raccoon whimpered and tried to crawl towards the entrance of the cavern, but the entrance had shrunk to the size of a small coin. Raccoon wept. Stormbringer trembled as if thirsty for Raccoon's soul. Elric stooped. Raccoon began to speak rapidly. Do not slay me, Elric, not with that rune blade. I will do anything you wish. I will die in any other way. Elric said, we are victims, cousin, of a conspiracy, a game played by gods, demons, and sentient swords. 
They wish one of us dead. I suspect they wish you dead more than they wish me dead, and that is the reason why I shall not slay you here. He picked up the scabbard, forced Stormbringer into it, and at once the sword was quiet. Alric took off his old scabbard and looked around for Albeck's sword, but that too was gone. He dropped the old scabbard and hooked the new one onto his belt. He rested his left hand upon the pommel of Stormbringer, and he looked not without sympathy upon the creature that was his cousin. You are a worm, Urkun. But is that your fault? Urkun gave him a puzzled glance. I wonder if you had all you desire, would you cease to be a worm, cousin? Urkun raised himself to his knees. A little hope began to show in his eyes. Alric smiled and drew a deep breath. We shall see, he said. You must agree to wake Simmeril from her sorcerous slumber. You have humbled me, Elric, said Urkun in a small, pitiful voice. I will wake her, or would. Can you not undo your spell? We cannot escape the pulsing cavern. It is past the time. What's this? I did not think you would follow me, and then I thought I would easily finish you. And now it is past the time. One can keep the entrance open for only a little while. It will admit anyone who cares to enter the pulsing cavern but it will let no one out after the power of the spell dies. I gave much to know that spell. You have given too much for everything, said Alric. He went on to the entrance and peered through. Rakia waited on the other side. The Red Archer had an anxious expression. Alric said, Warrior Priest of Foom, it appears that my cousin and I are trapped in here. The entrance will not part for us. Alric tested the warm, moist stuff of the wall. It would not open more than a tiny fraction. It seems that you can join us or else go back. If you do join us, you share our fate. It is not much of a fate if I go back, said Rakia. What chances have you? One, said Elric, I can invoke my patron. A lord of chaos, Rakia made a wry face. Exactly, said Elric. I speak of Arioch. Arioch, eh? Well, he does not care for renegades from Foom. What do you choose to do? Rakia stepped forward. Elric stepped back. Through the opening came Rakia's head, followed by his shoulders, followed by the rest of him. The entrance closed again immediately. Rakia stood up and unentangled the string of his bow from the stave, smoothing it. I agreed to share your fate, to gamble all on escaping from this plane, said the Red Archer. He looked surprised when he saw Urkun. Your enemy is still alive. Aye, well, you are merciful indeed. Perhaps. Or obstinate. I would not slay him merely because some supernatural agency used him as a pawn. To be killed if I should win. The lords of the higher worlds do not as yet control me completely. Nor will they if I have any power at all to resist them. Rakia grinned. I share your view, though I'm not optimistic about its realism. I see you have one of those black swords at your belt. Will that not hack away through the cavern? No, said Urkun from his place amongst the wall against the wall. Nothing can harm the stuff of the pulsing cavern. I'll believe you, said Elric, for I do not intend to draw the new sword of mine often. I must learn how to control it first. So Ariok must be summoned, Rakia sighed. If that is possible, said Elric. He will doubtless destroy me, said Rakia, looking at Elric in the hope that the albino would deny this statement. 
Elric looked grave. I might be able to strike a bargain with him. It will also test something. Elric turned his back on Rakir and Urkun. He adjusted his mind. He sent it out through vast spaces and complicated mazes. And he cried, Ariok, aid me, Ariok. He had a sense of something listening to him. Something shifted in the places where his mind went. Ariok! And Ariok heard him. He knew it was Ariok. Rakia gave a horrified yell. Erkun screamed. Elric turned and saw that something disgusting had appeared near the far wall. It was black and it was foul and it slobbered and its shape was intolerably alien. Was this Ariok? Well, how could it be? Ariok was beautiful. But perhaps, thought Elric, this was Ariok's true shape. Upon this plane in this particular cavern, Ariok could not deceive those who looked upon him. But then the shape had disappeared, and a beautiful youth with ancient eyes stood looking at the three mortals. You have won the sword, Elric, said Ariok, ignoring the others. I congratulate you, and you have spared your cousin's life. Why so? More than one reason, said Elric, but let us say he must remain alive in order to wake Cimmeril. Ariok's face bore a little secret smile for a moment, and Elric realised that he had avoided a trap. If he had killed Urkun, Cimmeril would never have woken again. And what's this little traitor doing with you? Ariok turned a cold eye on Rakia, who did his best to stare back at the Chaos Lord. He is my friend, said Elric. I made a bargain with him. If he aided me to find the Black Sword, then I would take him back with me to our own plane. Well, that's impossible. Rakir is in exile here. That is his punishment. He comes back with me, said Elric. And now he unhooked the scabbard holding Stormbringer from his belt, and he held the sword out before him. Or I do not take the sword with me. Failing that, we all three remain here for eternity. Well, that is not sensible, Elric. Consider your responsibilities. I have considered them, and that is my decision. Ariok's smooth face had just a tinge of anger. You must take the sword. It is your destiny. Well, so you say. But I now know that the sword may only be borne by me. You cannot bear it, Ariok, or you would. Only I, or another mortal like me, can take it from the Pulsing Cavern. Is that not so? You are clever, Elric of Malnimine, Ariok spoke with sardonic admiration, and you are a fitting servant of chaos. Very well. The traitor can go with you, but he would best be warned to tread warily. The lords of chaos, mm, have been known to bear malice, Rakia said hoarsely. So I have heard, my lord, Ariok. Ariok ignored the archer. The man of Foom is not, after all, important. And if you wish to spare your cousin's life, so be it. It matters little. Destiny can contain a few extra threads in her design and still accomplish her original aims. Very well then, said Elric. Take us from this place. Where to? Waitamal Nibane, if you please. With a smile that was almost tender, Ariok looked down on Elric and a silky hand stroked Elric's cheek. Ariok had grown to twice his original size. Ah. Oh. You are surely the sweetest of all my slaves, said the Lord of Chaos. And there was a whirling. 
There was a sound like the roar of the sea. There was a dreadful sense of nausea, and the three weary men stood on the floor of the great throne room in Imria. The throne room was deserted, save that in one corner a black shape like smoke writhed for a moment, and then was gone. Rakia crossed the floor and seated himself carefully upon the first step of the ruby throne. Urkun and Elric remained where they were, staring into each other's eyes. And then Elric laughed and slapped his scabbard sword. Now you must fulfil your promises to me, cousin, and then I have a proposition to put to you. Oh, it's like a marketplace, said Rakia, leaning on one elbow and inspecting the feather in his scarlet hat. So many bargains. Chapter 5. The Pale King's Mercy Urkun stepped back from his sister's bed. He was worn and his features were drawn and there was no spirit in him as he had said. It is done. He turned away and looked through the window at the towers of Imria, at the harbour where the returned golden battle barges rode at anchor, together with the ship which had been King Strasha's gift to Elric. She will wake in a moment, added Urkun absently. Divim Tvar and Rakia the Red Archer looked inquiringly at Elric, who kneeled by the bed, staring in the face of Simmeril. Her face grew peaceful as he watched, and for one terrible moment he suspected Prince Urkun of tricking him and of killing Simmeril. But then the eyelids moved and the eyes opened and she saw him and she smiled. Elric, the dreams. You are safe. I am safe, Simmeril, as are you. Urkun? He woke you. But you swore to slay him. I was as much subject to sorcery as you. My mind was confused. It is still confused where some matters are concerned, but Urkun has changed now. I defeated him. He does not doubt my power. He no longer lusts to usurp me. You are merciful, Alric. She brushed raven hair from her face. Alric exchanged a glance with Rakir. It might not be mercy which moves me, said Elric. It might merely be a sense of fellowship with Urkun. Fellowship? Surely you cannot feel. Oh, we are both mortal. We are both victims of a game played by the lords of the higher worlds. My loyalty must finally be to my own kind, and that is why I cease to hate Urkun. And that is mercy, said Simmeril. Urkun walked towards the door. May I leave, my Lord Emperor? Elric thought he detected a strange light in his defeated cousin's eyes, but perhaps it was only humility or despair. He nodded. Urkun went from the room, closing the door softly. Divim Tvar said, Trust Urkun not at all, Elric. He will betray you again. The Lord of the Dragon Caves was troubled. No, said Elric. If he does not fear me, he fears the sword I now carry. And you should fear that sword, said Divim Tvar. No, said Elric, I am the master of the sword. Divim Tvar made to speak again, but then shook his head almost sorrowfully, bowed, and together with the Rakia the Red Archer, left Elric and Simmeril alone. Simmeril took Elric in her arms. They kissed. They wept. There were celebrations in Malnibane for a week. Now almost all the ships and men and dragons were home. Elric was home, having proved his right to rule so well that all his strange quirks of character, this mercy of his was perhaps the strangest, were accepted by the populace. 
In the throne room there was a ball, and it was the most lavish ball any of the courtiers had ever known. Elric danced with Cimmeril, taking a full part in the activities. Only Erkun did not dance, preferring to remain in a quiet corner below the gallery of the music slaves, ignored by the guests. Rakir the Red Archer danced with several Malnibonean ladies, and made assinations with them all, for he was a hero now in Malnibonay. Divim Tvar danced too, though his eyes were often brooding when they fell upon Prince Erkun. And later, when people ate, Elric spoke to Cimmeril as they sat together on the dais of the ruby throne. Would you be imp Empress, Cimmeril? You know I will marry you, Elric. We have both known that for many a year, have we not? So you would be my wife? Aye, she laughed, for she thought he joked. And not be Empress? For a year at least? What mean you, my lord? I must go away from Malnibonay, Cimmeril, for a year. What I have learned in recent months has made me want to travel the young kingdoms, see how other nations conduct their affairs, for I think Malnibonay must change if she is to survive. She could become a great force for good in the world, for she still has much power. For good? Cimmeril was surprised, and there was a little alarm in her voice. Malnibonay has never stood for good or for evil, but for herself and the satisfaction of her desires. I would see that changed. You intend to alter everything. I intend to travel the world and then decide if there is any point to such a decision. The lords of the higher worlds have ambition in them. Though they have given me aid of late, I fear them. I would like to see if it is possible for men to rule their own affairs. And you will go? There were tears in her eyes. When? Tomorrow, when Rakia leaves. We will take King Strash's ship and make for the Isle of the Purple Towns, where Rakia has friends. Will you come? I cannot imagine. I cannot. Uh, Elric, why spoil this happiness we now have? Because I feel that the happiness cannot last, unless we know completely what we are. She frowned. Then you must discover that, if that is what you wish, she said slowly, but it is for you to discover alone, Elric, for I have no such desire. You must go by yourself into those barbarian lands. You will not accompany me. It is not possible. I am... Malnibonean. She sighed. I love you, Elric. And I love you, Cimmeril. Then we shall be married when, you're, when you return, in a year. Elric was full of sorrow, but he knew that his decision was correct. If he did not leave, he would grow restless soon enough. And if he grew restless, he might come to regard Cimmeril as an enemy, someone who had trapped him. Then you must rule as Empress until I return, he said. No, Elric, I cannot take that responsibility. Then who? Divim Tvar? I know Divim Tvar. He will not take such power. Margam Colum, perhaps? No. Well, then you must stay, Elric. But Elric's gaze had travelled through the crowd in the throne room. It stopped when it reached a lonely figure, seated by itself under the gallery of the music slaves. Then Elric smiled ironically and said, Oh, then it must be Erkun. Cimmeril was horrified. No, Elric, he will abuse any power. Not now, and it is just. It is, he is the only one who wanted to be emperor. Now he can rule as emperor for a year in my stead. If he rules well, I may consider abdicating in his favour. If he rules badly, it will prove, once and for all, that all his ambitions were misguided. Elric, said Cimmeril, I love you, but you are a fool, a criminal, if you trust Erkun again. 
No, he said evenly, I am not a fool. All I am is Elric. I cannot help that, Simmeril. It is Elric that I love, she cried, but Elric is doomed. We are all doomed unless you remain here now. I cannot, because I love you, Simmeril, I cannot. He stood up. She was weeping. She was lost. And I am Simmeril, she said. You will destroy us both. Her voice softened and she stroked his hair. You will destroy us, Elric. No, he said. I will build something that will be better. I will discover things. When I return, we shall marry and we shall live long and we shall be happy, Simmeril. And now Elric had told three lies. The first concerned his cousin Erkun. The second concerned the black sword. The third concerned Simmeril. And upon those three lies was Elric's destiny to, to be built. For it is only about the things which concern us most profoundly that we lie clearly and with profound conviction. Epilogue There was a port called Menei, which was one of the humblest and friendliest of the purple towns. Like the others on the isle, it was built mainly of the purple stone which gave the towns their name. And there were red roofs on the houses and bright-sailed boats of all kinds in the harbour as Elric and Rakia the Red Archer came ashore in the early morning when just a few sailors were beginning to make their way down to their ships. King Strasher's lovely ship lay some way out beyond the harbour wall. They had used a small boat to cross the water between it and the town. They turned and looked back to the ship. They had sailed it themselves without crew and the ship had sailed well. So, I must seek peace in mythic Tanalorn, said Rakia, with a certain amount of self-mockery. He stretched and yawned, and the bow and the quiver danced on his back. Elric was dressed in simple costume that might have marked any soldier of fortune in the young kingdoms. He looked fit and relaxed. He smiled into the sun. The only remarkable thing about his garb was the great black rune sword at his side. Since he had donned the sword, he had needed no drugs to sustain him at all. And I must seek knowledge in the lands I find marked upon my map, said Elric. I must learn, and I must carry what I learn, back to Malnibane at the end of the year. I wish that Simmeril had accompanied me, but I understand her reluctance. You will go back, Rikia said, when a year is over. <laughs> she will draw me back, Elric laughed. My only fear is that I will weaken and return before my quest is finished. Well, I should like to come with you, said Rikia, for I have travelled in most lands and would be as good a guide as I was in the netherworld, but I am sworn to find Tanalorn, for all I know it does not really exist. Well, I hope you will find it, warrior priest of Foom, said Elric. Oh, I shall never be that again, said Rikia, and then his eyes widened a little. Why, look, your ship. And Elric looked and saw the ship that had once been called the ship which sails over land and sea, and he saw slowly it was sinking. King Strasher was taking it back. The elementals are friends at least, he said, but I fear their power wanes as the power of Malnibane wanes. For all that we are the Dragon Isle, are considered evil by the folk of the young spirits. We share much in common with the spirits of air, earth, fire and water. Rakia said as the masts of the ship disappeared beneath the waves. I envy you those friends, Elric, you may trust them. I, Rakia looked at the rune sword hanging on Elric's hip. But you would be wise to trust nothing else, he said. Elric laughed, 
Fear not for me, Ricky, for I am my own master, for a year at least, and I am master of the sword now. The sword seemed to stir at his side, and he took firm hold of its grip and slapped Rakia on the back, and he laughed and shook his white hair so that it drifted in the air, and he lifted his strange red eyes to the sky, and he said, I shall be a new man when I return to Malnibane.